Today we're going to conclude our series on praying with your eyes open on page 17. Next week, we'll start a nine-week series that is called The Gospel-Centered Life. So in this hour, next week, The Gospel-Centered Life, there are workbooks for that, notebooks for that, that are published. That, so that I put these notes together, but this is published stuff that we bought. And those notebooks are available at the Resource Center, uh, available for $5. That's less than what we paid for them, so we're not ripping you off. But uh, we're just trying to defray the cost a little bit. But $5 for the uh, workbook. So you can pick that up today, even before you leave. Certainly next week, if you can, you want to pick one of those up. If you're a guest, uh, if you've never been to one of our series, then we always give uh, your first book to you for free. So get it for free. And if the folks at the Resource Center don't know that you're new or don't believe that you're new and give you a hard time, then arm wrestle them for the, uh, for the book. And, uh, but... They'll, they'll give it to you. Just tell them you're new and you want it for free, okay? And uh, so it's free to you, $5 for everybody else, and nine weeks, gospel-centered life. And it will be uh, a very helpful series, I believe, on how to apply the grace of God to the various areas of life to which he has called us, okay? All right, with that, we have been in this series now for the last many weeks, praying with your eyes open. And we looked at the uh, the issue of starting our prayers in Jesus' name as opposed to just ending them in Jesus' name. And if you've been with us for any of these weeks, you know what's meant by that, so I won't belabor it, uh, other than to say it, it means coming to prayer with a mindset that says that I am coming to this prayer on the merits and in the power and with the purposes of Jesus Christ in mind. Whatever the prayer is, I'm coming in Jesus' name, not as a formulaic thing that I say, in Jesus' name, Lord, will you do these things? But rather, I'm coming with a mindset that, that recognizes that I can only approach the throne of the Father based upon the merits of Jesus. Recognizing that the truth is, I don't have enough of a view of God's purposes in His world and all of the connections between everything that's happening to even know what to ask, says Romans 8.26. We don't even know what we need to ask for. And so because I come in Jesus' name, though, because I have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, I also have the Holy Spirit who, Romans 8 says, makes intercession. So he translates my prayers into what they ought to be. So I come in Jesus' name thinking about the fact that I can only approach the Father because of the perfect merit of of Jesus Christ. And, and I have the Holy Spirit, therefore. And I want the purposes of Christ and the honor of Christ and the name of Christ to be achieved in his world. And so my prayer needs to be formulated with those purposes in mind. So starting our prayers in Jesus' name is a good way for us to think about prayer. But then offering our prayers in Jesus' way. That was on beginning on page 6 in your notes. Offering our, your prayer, our prayers in Jesus' way. Looked at the disciples' prayer and Jesus' model prayer and the six petitions there, the six requests that he says for us to bring before the Father. Six requests. Three of them are uh, talking to the Father about the Father, and then the other three are talking to the Father about the family. As we talk to the Father about the Father, we pray things like, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done. And as we talk to the Father about the family, we ask Him to provide our daily bread and to forgive us our sins and to lead us not into temptation. And then uh, bringing our prayers uh, according to Jesus' word. Praying according to Jesus' word is what we've been looking at the last several weeks. And we've seen issues like 
Jesus tells us in the Bible to come confidently and to come expectantly and to come boldly. And we've been looking at and persistently. And now today we're going to conclude on page 17 by looking at the fact that we're to come wisely. We're to approach the throne of God in our prayers and to do so wisely. Now at the end of last week, um, on page 16, we saw that another way that the Bible instructs us to come in our prayers is righteously. And we explained when we, when we say righteously, it means to pray rightly, that is, pray according to the will of God as given in, in Scripture. So to pray rightly, I can know that my prayers are pleasing to God and our prayers according to his will, if I have prayed righteously. Well, then how do I know that I'm praying righteously? Well, if I'm praying what the Bible says God wants, then I'm praying righteously. And so we said last week on page 16 that there are these two fences, these two uh, parameters that will keep us within the framework of praying within the will of God if we'll give careful attention to them. The one boundary, the one fence is praying rightly, praying righteously according to what God has said. And so we saw things like 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3. That says, it is God's will that you be sanctified. And that's a quote. It is God's will that you be sanctified. Well, if I pray, Lord, I desire to be sanctified. Am I praying in God's will? That's a no-brainer, right? God has said, this is my will that you be progressively set apart from the world and to God and becoming more like, more like Jesus. And then 1 Thessalonians 4, there's a colon after the word sanctified. It is God's will that you be sanctified, colon. And then it tells you what it means, what it looks like to be sanctified. So to pray that kind of prayer back to God is clearly staying then within this boundary of righteous prayer, right prayer, because it's what God has said uh, we, we ought to pray. Now, there's this other fence, though, that put together with praying rightly will keep us within God's will, and that is praying wisely. And that's at the top of page 17. The Bible tells us to pray wisely. Frequently God calls us to apply scriptural principles to choices when there's no obvious right or wrong. Usually we have more uncertainty about these decisions than where the fence of righteousness clearly marks our path. The answer is to ask God to make us conscious of and submissive to the principle of, principles of his word that apply to our situation. In this way, then, we have this other fence that marks the path. The Bible then guides us by the fence of Christian prudence or, or wisdom. Prudence or wisdom keeps our prayer and actions within God's will, even when choices we must make are not clearly right or wrong. So you've got the righteousness one where God says, this is what I want. But then you've got the wisdom fence where God doesn't have a black and white. And there are two choices that look to be equal. Now what do I, now what do I pray? And that is the application of Christian wisdom. So we ask God for wisdom. Why do I ask God for wisdom? He says to. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And so this is something God directly says, ask me for. Ask me for wisdom so that I can give you insight 
into the circumstances that I have placed you in so that in those circumstances you can accomplish my purposes. So the first thing we do if we're going to pray wisely is ask God for wisdom in the circumstances to which he has called us. The other thing we've got to do is have a right view of the will, the will of God. In situations where God has not clearly marked out which one is right, which one is wrong, which one is best, which one is less best. How do I discern the will of God wisely in situations like that? Well, that is a topic that Christians have been befuddled about, I think, for a long time. Confused about for a long time. There is a lot of, I I would just say, um, less than helpful teaching about the will of God out there. So let me share with you some of what I have heard about the will of God and then try to provide what I think are some helpful principles for discerning the will of God when something is not clearly marked out in Scripture. This is the way I used to hear it uh, when, I was, uh, when I was in high school. I went to a Christian high school, and as I was growing up, you know, as you, especially as you start to become an upperclassman in high school, you get to 11th grade, 12th grade, knowing the will of God for your life becomes really important. And so the teachers were helpfully trying to assist us in discerning the will of God for our lives. And if you made the mistake of going to a Christian college, I'm, <laughs> I mean, the will of God is like topic number one, like all the time. I spent two days at a Christian college. I've tried to stretch it into two weeks, but the, I've said I spent two weeks. It, the truth is I was there for two days, okay? That's the truth, all right? That's it, a quick side story. I attended the Christian college that was the denominational college of the Pentecostal denomination I was in at the time. And they threw a big party for me and a couple of other kids who were going to this denominational college in Tennessee. And it was a send-away, and, uh, and it was gifts and all kinds of stuff. And it was really nice. And so I go down there that week, and one, I'm a mama's boy, two... I hadn't completely made all the financial arrangements, if you follow my drift. <laughs> and then three, three, it really was a kind of glorified campground. I mean, it was pretty clear that at least half the kids there were there to just have a good time. So there were just a bunch of reasons I didn't want to be here. Now, here's another one. The first dude I met, um, hmm, how do I say this? Um, yeah, I better not say it. How about that? <laughs> but he made me a little squeamish. And, and we went out to dinner the first night I was there, and he threw his hands on the table, and he said, where I'm from, we, we hold hands when we pray. And I was already a little squeamish. And I said, where I'm from, we don't. So keep your distance. So anyway, uh, I'm miserable. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you know, him and I'm telling some other people, you know, I'm thinking about leaving. And you talk about getting bombarded with the will of God. Man, if you're leaving a Christian college, that Christian college knows the will of God. And you ain't in it if you leave. And they scared me to death. Such that I made an escape at midnight. I left at midnight. I boxed my stuff up and I left. And I drove the 11 or 12 hours from Chattanooga, Cleveland, Tennessee, just north of Chattanooga, home. 
scared that God was going to get me in a car accident because I was out of the will of God. So this is what I was going to do to get around that. Drive really careful. God will never be able to get me if I drive really careful, right? So I, so I show up at home, and then I show up at church the following week, the church that had thrown a party for me. And one of the deacons says, one of these old deacons goes, is it, is it break already? <laughs> and he meant it. But anyway, two days at a Christian college, but they are serious about the will of God in a Christian high school, and especially you go to a Christian college. And, and how is it that the will of God is discerned? Here is what many of us were taught. What you're looking for when you're looking for the will of God in your life is you're looking for God's, some call it the, the, the perfect dot, the center of God's will. Anybody ever heard that? The center of God's will? You're looking for God's perfect will, the center of God's will. These are all synonyms for there's one thing for you to do and you've got to find it. Well, man, that's rough. There is, if you're a guy, there is one girl out there for you to marry. One. That's God's perfect will. That's the center of God's will. Well, where is she? How will I know her when I see her? And this is the really scary one. What if she already married out of God's will? My life's shot for eternity. I can never be in the perfect will of God. Which, by the way, just shows you that that thing does not work. The Bible does not teach this. You need to search for the dot, the center of God's will. There is one person, there is one thing for you to do, and you need to know absolutely what it is. The Bible does not teach that. Now, where, does, where do people get the idea that it does? Well, one place is from Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Romans 12, 1. Which talks about, you remember... Therefore, in view of God's mercies, present your bodies as living sacrifices unto the Lord. And then we're told to be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that then you can know God's good and acceptable and perfect will. That's what it said. Good, acceptable, perfect will. It actually says so you can prove what what is God's good, acceptable, and perfect will. And the mistake that many have made is to see those three words, good, acceptable, perfect, as sort of good, better, best. So God has three wills. You know, it's like the car wash. You want the $4 good model? Do you want your tires cleaned? Do you want it waxed? Good, better, best. And so you've got good, acceptable, and, and perfect. And you want perfect. Well, here's the thing. Those are not, it's not good or acceptable or perfect. It's actually one will of God, and that one will of God is all three of those things. It's good, and it's acceptable, and it's perfect. And what it's telling you is, if you will be no longer conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will demonstrate, you will show, you will test and approve what God's will is. His good and acceptable and perfect will. So the first fallacy is that God has these like three wills. Good, better, and best. He's got one will, and it's described those three ways. So then, 
having thought that, there is the good, better, best, and of course you want the best, you want the center of God's will, you want his perfect will for you, now we need to develop some ways to find that. And so what I was taught, and perhaps what many of you were taught, was the way you find God's perfect will is uh, through a series of, of signs. Anybody ever had this? You know, you're looking at things like open doors. So, God will open doors to make clear to you that this is the direction he wants you to go. So you find many people praying. I'm not making this up. People would put fleeces out before the Lord so that they could then test the signs. Now, what's, a, what's putting a fleece out before the Lord? You all remember? This is from Gideon. And God tells Gideon, I want you to go to war against the Midianites and they are a 30,000 army, you know, and you're 3,000, and God whittles it down to 300. And, and Gideon says, um, I don't know. No, I don't want to do that. So, God, I don't want to do that. So why don't you get a good night's sleep and think about it again? I mean, this is, in effect, what Gideon's telling God. And I'm going to put a fleece out and if in the morning the fleece is, is wet, then it'll tell me one thing. If it's dry, it'll tell me another thing. In other words, God, why don't you give that another pass? Well, what is Gideon doing? Gideon is being directly disobedient to God, is he not? The whole idea of putting a fleece out before God is a disobedient act. And yet many of us were taught that's how you, one way you can discern the will of God. Put a fleece out and then say, like Gideon said, if it's wet or dry, do this. Here's what you should do. You know, if the phone rings in the next hour, so people pray, Lord, if you want me to do this, have the phone ring in the next hour. Now think about what you could open yourself up to with that. You know, the phone rings, and it could be anything, and you've determined that's the will of God because that's the full fleece you put out. So many of us, trying to find the perfect center of God's will, were told to look at these sorts of signs, and very often they were mystical signs like the phone rang right at the right time, or I ran into somebody at the grocery store who said something was directly related to what I was thinking about, so that must be God trying to tell me something. And so that's one way, is through these, these mystical signs. Circumstances such that doors opened mystically that confirm for us that this is what God wants us to do. Or here's another one, related to this mystical approach. You'll know it's God's will when you have peace about it. You've heard that before? You'll know it's God's will if you have peace about it. It's often uh, taken from Philippians chapter 4, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition present your requests to God and the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in, in Christ Jesus. Now there's, there's nothing in that passage about making decisions about God's perfect will, about any of that. But it's another approach that's been developed to say, if you feel at ease about it and you feel peace about it, this must be what God wants you to do. Now let me ask you, do you think it's possible for somebody to feel at peace about the wrong thing? Okay, So these, these feeling-based, mystically-based approaches to God's will can be extremely tricky, can they not? All right. So you see the problem trying to discern God's will when you've got 
two or more acceptable, not sinful, not obviously sinful choices, how do I discern what God's will is then in those situations? And I've divided up four approaches that folks normally take to that that I want to give to you. First one is this. Feeling, feeling-based decision-making. And that's largely what I've been talking about. Led by your feelings, I feel like this is the right thing to do. I have a peace about it. This is often accompanied by statements like, the Lord led me. So we're looking for the Spirit to lead us to the right decision. Now, that phrase, Spirit leading, is used two times in your New Testament. Uh, It is used in... uh, Galatians 4, and it's used in Romans 8. And both times it is used of this way. It says, as many who as are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. They are the sons of God, right? So one of the ways you know that you're a son or daughter of God is that you're led by the Spirit. Well, that then raises the question, okay, what is being led by the Spirit? But see, you don't have to guess. Because Romans 8 and Galatians 4 tell you. Those who are led by the Spirit will evidence the qualities of the Spirit in their life. These qualities are moral, spiritual qualities. They're spiritual fruit. As a matter of fact, when you get to Galatians 5, do you remember famously in Galatians 5? and verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is... So being, what does the Spirit lead you into? The Spirit leads you into Christ-like living. Spirit-led moral living. It says nothing about leading you into a decision about a particular thing. But this is often what people say, that the, the Spirit led me to. Now, you might use that terminology and mean something else by it, which is fine, because God in His providence is leading all the time. And so you might say, you know, we believe God led us to this church or led us to... Meaning, and what you should mean is, God in His providence worked out the circumstances such that we needed a place where we could serve Him. How do we know we need a place to serve Him? He says so in the Bible. (laughs) And He led us to this place and led us to do what the Johnsons have been doing and take a close look and see if it lines up with Scripture and and so forth and then make a wisdom-based decision. So one approach that folks take is a feeling-based approach decision-making approach, being led of the Lord, following mystical impulses, peace, and so on. Here's another one. Outcome-based decision-making. Outcome-based. And the the approach here is that a decision is deemed to be good or bad, right or wrong, wise or unwise, based upon whether or not it worked out. So this one is more an after-the-fact okay, I've had my peace about it or however I determined it, but I I took my leap, I made this decision, and then lo and behold, a lot of great things happened out of that. It worked out, so therefore that must have been God's, God's will. Now, let me ask you, does the fact that something worked out mean that that's what God wanted you to, the original decision is what God wanted you to do? Not necessarily. Let me give you an example from Scripture. You all familiar with the story of Ruth? Four chapters in Ruth? Um, 
that is a, it's just a, an amazing story in four chapters that has so much significance for later biblical truth, including the fact that the Messiah ultimately would be born in Bethlehem. That all starts in Ruth. But it starts out in Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1 this way. In the days when the judges ruled. That's the very first line. Now, here's what you're to get out of that very first line. In the days when the judges ruled. Here's my translation. These were really lousy days. Because the days when the judges ruled were bad. How do you know they were bad? Guess what the book right before Ruth is in your Bible? Judges. And the book of Judges has 25 chapters in it. And throughout those 25 chapters, you have this refrain over and over again, in those days Israel had no king, and everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. It was a mess. As a matter of fact, the very last verse in the book of Judges is that, what I just said. Judges 25 and verse 21, in those days Israel had no king, everybody did that which was right in his own eyes. Now the next verse in the Bible says, in the days when the judges ruled. That is, in these lousy days. A famine came upon the land. And a man named Elimelech took his family from Israel to Moab to get food. Now, if you've read through Genesis, you would know that Moab is not the place that God's people are supposed to go. So Elimelech makes this mistake. He makes, he makes this wrong decision to take his family to, to Moab. And when they're in Moab, some bad things happen. His two sons die. He dies. Naomi, his wife, is left with two daughters-in-law, daughters so some bad things happen. Outcome-based, this is a bad decision. Well, we already knew it was a bad decision because God said so earlier. But then God in his providence works through this whole story to bring them back. You remember the whole story. And then Ruth marries Boaz, and then she becomes an ancestor for David such that Bethlehem becomes the city of David, and thus the Messiah comes out of, of Bethlehem. All these marvelous things happen. So now you're Elimelech, and you're up in heaven or wherever Elimelech is, and you're watching all this transpire, and you go, you know, that actually was a good decision. Now see, the fact that it was, the fact that it turned out ultimately for good does not mean that the original decision was right, does it? I mean, think about this. Jesus was murdered. Did good come out of that? Yeah, a lot of good. If you're Pilate, do you get to say that was a good decision? The Bible calls Pilate a murderer. Herod a murderer. The fact that it worked out does not mean the original decision was one that pleases God. But it's an approach that many people, many people take. Outcome-based. If it turned out, it must have been a good decision. Third approach. It's what I call opportunity-based decision-making. That is, opportunity-based. That is, the Lord has opened a door. And I walked through it. Now, the open door terminology is biblical terminology like being led of the spirit is biblical terminology it's just sometimes misused in colossians chapter 4 paul paul says pray that the lord will will open a door for the gospel 
and that I will have boldness to proclaim it as I should. So the idea of God in his providence working to open doors, make opportunities available to give the gospel is a very biblical idea. But when used for opportunity-based decision-making, very often the Lord opened a door meaning something like this. The Lord opened the door for me to make 20,000 more than I make this year. All I have to do is move to, and I'm just making up a state, move to Alaska, okay? Because I don't think we've had anybody move to Alaska. Just so you know, I'm not picking on anybody. Well, okay, but, but back, okay, the Lord, okay, that opportunity is available to you. Does the fact that that opportunity is available to you mean that that's what you ought to do? Does the fact that it'll result in a larger paycheck mean that that's what you ought to do? And the answer to that is no doesn't mean you shouldn't. We haven't gotten to the answer to that question yet. All I'm saying is the fact that an opportunity exists does not mean that it's necessarily the right decision for you to go ahead and take it. You've got some other stuff to consider. Like, um, is there a church there that I can pursue the mission with? Let's go with Alaska. Want to be a church planner in Alaska? Take your 20 grand and go for it. But is there a church there where I can pursue the, the mission? Um, you know, what, are, what about my children? If I have children and uprooting them and all of that. So the Lord opened up this opportunity and I took it. And you will hear people say that all the time. Now, it doesn't mean when they say that they made the wrong decision. I'm not saying they have. I'm simply saying the mere fact that the opportunity is there does not mean that God is saying you should do that. You've got some other things you need to think about and to, and to grapple with. Coming out of that, you get phrases like this. Have you ever heard this? Maybe you've said this. Bloom where you are planted. Now, if understood properly, that's a good, that's a good phrase, I think. Bloom where you're planted. Here's the way I hear it used a lot of times, though. Somebody has made one of these opportunity-based decisions and then some other well-meaning person has said, well, bloom where you're planted. Meaning you're going someplace else, you're going to replant, now bloom there. Well, that doesn't say anything about whether or not you should be replanting. You still got to go back to the original decision, is this something I should be doing or not? So there's feeling-based decision-making, outcome-based decision-making, opportunity-based decision-making. And then the last one is, the only one that I know of that is true to what God says in Scripture, and I just call it purpose-based decision-making. You can use synonyms for that mission-based decision-making. And the idea here is now, I make my decisions completely and only to advance the mission that Jesus has given us. So now, if I'm going to make a decision to go to Alaska or anyplace else, the whole church thing is really going to matter because that's central to the mission. And so there's either going to be one or I'm going to help plant one. But it's going to be mission-based and purpose-based. And so now my, my deliberations are going to be not, is this an opportunity that I'd like to take? Not, do I feel good about it? 
It's will this advance the mission to which Jesus has called us? And if so, how so? And the truth is, it may. It may offer opportunities for the advance of the mission and the advance of the gospel in another, in another place. The additional money you get out of that job may allow you to contribute, literally, to the mission in, in greater ways that you are absolutely intent on doing and have intentionally thought about. And so this is the kind of decision-making you see Paul making. This is why I say I think it's true to Scripture. As I read through the New Testament, this is what I see Paul doing. He is setting his life and his itinerary and his travel plans and everything around the advance of the mission. There are times where he plans to do things to further the work of Christ and they get thwarted by circumstances. And so you find him writing to the Romans that I'm hoping to, I would hope to come to you by now, but I've been providentially hindered. I've been set back. He'd have shipwrecks, he'd have all kinds of things. But his planning was always to advance the frontiers of the mission. So the only criteria that I know of, friends, where you and I can safely say, I am making a wise decision in this particular situation, is when I have thought about, I have prayed about, and I am intentionally pursuing the advance of God's mission through this thing. And I, I believe that is true of every last decision you make. And I'm every one. Whether you eat or drink, right? I mean, those are kind of small things, aren't they? Eating and drinking. <laughs> but whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, you do it all to the glory of God. And how is the glory of God being achieved in this age? Through the advance of his mission through his church. So every decision I make needs to say, is this advancing the mission? So what do, I, what do you want to be when you grow up? Too late for us, but my 17-year-old daughter, I'm talking with her about it. And I am not, we are not just saying, hey, you know, let's just figure out what you like and pursue it. Yes, we want to, to take into consideration how God has made you, how God has wired you. But we, we want to take what God has made of you and see how that can be used to advance his mission. Poor girl. <laughs> She's got to deal with me and my wife doing all that. But on a serious note, we are dead serious about that. And we're trying to teach her that. You're going to pick, pick a college. You're going to pick a major. You're going to pick a direction for your life based upon advancing the mission of Jesus. You say, well, then you told that girl she's going to be a missionary. But yeah, so are you. Am I right or am I right? We're all missionaries. We just think of missionaries as people who go to foreign lands. But missionaries are, are downriver. Missionaries are southeast Michigan. And so we make our decisions, all of them, based upon what is best for advancing the mission. Now, just think about what if you started doing that? What if you had a church of people who started doing that? And then they prayed, Lord, this is what I want to do. I ask you to bring that to fruition now. Because I have this opportunity, or you've given me this ability, and if you will open this door, th I want to do this to advance your cause in your world. Man, what a marvelous thing. And, and, and everything fits into this. I have to shut up in a minute, and all of God's people said...
But everything fits into it. Your vacation fits into it. I mean, does, does, do you do your vacation to the glory of God? How do you know if you're doing your vacation to the glory of God? Well, here's my answer. If it helps advance the mission, you are. Really? Me hanging out on the beach advances the mission? This is the way you need to look at it. We need to look at it. God gives me rest so that I can work in his mission. Even the rest that God gives me needs to be seen as the means to the end of advancing his mission. Purpose-based decision-making. So you go on vacation. I'm looking forward. We've already been talking about what we're hoping to do this summer. We look forward to that. We look forward to the camaraderie and the, and the togetherness that it allows for our family. But why does that togetherness matter for our family? Because my family's a mission field. And I need that relationship with my 17-year-old girl so that when I tell her this is how you need to decide what you're going to do with your young life, she's going to be inclined to listen. Because she loves me and I love her and we've spent this time together. The vacation is part of it. Every last thing you do and I do needs to be seen as part of purpose-based decision-making. Now on page 17, that means the Bible tells us to pray wisely. Pray rightly, pray wisely, and then pray forwardly. And forwardly simply means this, that we're looking to the future. When we pray, we pray forward. Lord, take this feeble thing that you're allowing me to do and allowing me to put my hand to and use it to great effect, not only now, but in years to come. To see many souls come, come to Christ. To see many people changed for your, for your glory. It's praying the way Jesus said in the model prayer. Your kingdom come. I'm looking forward to the time when. All that's being done now and my small contribution to that is going to have played itself out completely through the ripple effects of all of the connections in your world to bring, your, bring you glory in your kingdom. That's what we mean by saying pray forwardly. Well, pray beginning with Jesus' name. Offer your prayers in Jesus' way. Pray according to Jesus' word. And friends, our good God is pleased to take prayers like that and answer them. And then people like us get to go praise Jesus. Can't lift your hands because you're Baptist, but if you're just in private, you can say praise Jesus. You say praise Jesus for all that he has done in answering these prayers according, according to his will. And he loves to see that happen. We say, Lord, if you'll give us this ministry center, this is what we're hoping to do by your grace. Three years from now, five years from now, those things are accomplished. And we go, that's what we asked Jesus to do, and he did it. And who gets credit for that? In John 15, verses 7 and 8, John 15, verses 7 and 8, Jesus tells his first followers, you ask of me, because this is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit. And the this is to my Father's glory is right between you ask and bear fruit. 
So which one does it go with? Both. You asking is to my glory because you're showing your dependence on me. And the fruit being given is to my glory because I get the credit. Those are the kinds of prayers Jesus is pleased to answer. May we pray them and see him do so. Let's bow together. Father, thank you for this several weeks to look at this important issue of communicating to you in prayer. Thank you for the privilege of prayer. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the basis upon which we can come to you with our prayer. We thank you for his merit. We thank you for the power that he gives through his Holy Spirit. We thank you for the purposes that he has revealed in your word for which we are to live. We thank you for the model of prayer that Jesus gave when he walked the earth so that we, we know how to approach you and to formulate our prayer. And Lord, we thank you for the promise of the Holy Spirit who can take what we're asking and fit it into the grand scheme. God Almighty seeing every connection both now and into the future and how best then to answer this prayer. We thank you for the confidence that gives us as we approach you when we really know not what to ask. And Lord, we thank you that you've told us in your word what it means to ask according to your will. You've told us what pleases you. You've given us instruction about what our mission is here so that we can pray wisely, that we can make application of the circumstances with which we're confronted to advance the the purpose to which you have called us in your mission. And Lord, we look forward to the day when the fruit of all of this will be done. And we will see the results of what you are doing right now in your world and how you are using our feeble prayers and how you are using our contribution that you allow us to make, allow us to make in your work. And we see the fruit born in, in many thousands upon thousands and 10,000 upon 10,000 encircling the throne and singing praise to our God. So Lord, help us to go forth now confident in the way we pray to you as we come in Jesus' name and pray according to his will. We ask you, Lord, grant us safety this week and bring us back together next Lord's Day. In the name of Jesus, amen.